Philosophy and Transformation Higher power is strongly connected with the addiction field when it comes to change and recovery. This has been described by numerous support groups in helping to achieve change from a life controlled by substance use. Author Dr. Peg O'Connor talks about how philosophy helped her get and remain sober along with the struggles of the concept of higher power. Her new book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering, dives deep into the work of William James and how it relates to addiction and recovery. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Peg O'Connor, a recovering alcoholic and professor of philosophy specializing in addiction studies. Peg has been sober for 34 years. She believes that philosophy helped her to get and remain sober, but she avoided Alcoholics Anonymous for the first 20 years of her sobriety because of the concept of a higher power. Now, Dr. O'Connor is the author of the new book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. In Higher and Friendly Powers, Peg O'Connor, PhD, addresses an audience much like herself, those in recovery who have struggled with the Christian-centric God at the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous. She brings our attention to a little-known fact, the term higher power, a touchstone in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, was coined by William James, philosopher, psychologist, and intellectual giant of the 20th century. This is Talking Addiction and Recovery, the podcast talking, you guessed it, all about addiction and recovery. Join your host, licensed professional counselor Andrew J. Schreier, as he and his guests break down recovery topics with raw honesty, delving into niche conversations around the topics of substance abuse, mental health, and gambling. We intend to meet individuals where they are on their own personal journey of recovery with dignity, respect, and compassion. We'll do more than talk addiction and recovery. We'll explore it. We're glad you've joined us. Here with today's episode, your host, Andrew Schreier. Welcome, Peg O'Connor, to Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. I really look forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about your book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction Suffering, mostly because the, the, uh, the approach to it and the foundation with the, the philosophical, you know, behind it, it was fascinating. You don't see that a lot in the addiction recovery books that I've, I've read and seen. This seems so different. Well, it's interesting because I think in many ways, philosophy is the original self-help discipline that the ancient philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, were concerned about care of the soul or care of your person. And I think in many ways, that's what recovery certainly is about, is you know caring for your person, becoming a different person from the person you were when you were using. And, and I think that Addiction oftentimes is a struggle looking for meaning or value in life, or perhaps people aren't finding a lot of it. So I think philosophy has a lot to offer. So I'm I'm just tickled to get the chance to talk about it. Where do you think that kind of went away from approaching issues like addiction and like in recovery? Like, was it just advancements in other areas or just newer approaches to treatment that that moved away from that because 
when you explain that and think about it, philosophy does dig deep into some of those very personal soul issues, well-being, like all these concepts that make sense, but it doesn't seem like it's approached that way that often anymore. So if you were to draw a family tree of academic disciplines, many would spring from philosophy. So up until about the 1600s, philosophy, natural philosophy would encompass what we now call biology and chemistry, for example. And then as the sciences began their rise to the enlightenment, they split off from philosophy. And psychology only split off from philosophy probably about 100 20, 30 years ago. So if you go far enough in many disciplines, you'll bump into the philosophical questions that I would argue still undergird a lot of the sciences. So with the rise of psychology and the ways even now that psychology oftentimes I think is trying to wrestle its way into being seen as a legitimate science. I mean, a lot of psychology departments right now are renaming themselves psychological science and much of psychology or psychological science has gone off in a direction of neuroscience where the philosophical questions get left behind. I, I kind of feel sometimes that philosophy is like the equivalent of the model T and psychology, neuroscience, addiction medicine, they're the Maserati. But it's people who have addictions and it's people who struggle, people who suffer, people who look for ways to transform their suffering. And that I happen to think is the bread and butter of philosophy. Yeah, that's it's great to hear to read about it, talk and, and like you said, talk about it. And at first when I like looked at it and I started reading it, I I noticed that it falls a lot of work on William James. And I went into my my library. And I have like my own copy. Yes, you do. I have that of, copy too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I have his own copy of, of this work um, and very familiar with it. And you draw a lot from his his work. What brought that connection into like your book and, and what you're talking about? So Bill Wilson wrote in several places that he regarded William James as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So William James was an American psychologist, philosopher, and physician who lived between 1842 and 1910. And so there was a mystery there. Wait a minute. James died in 1910. Bill Wilson didn't sober up until 1934. AA doesn't come into existence as a something until a couple of years after that. What the heck did that mean? So I, being an academic, I was intrigued. So I decided I had to do some sleuthing. And I looked for references to James in Bill Wilson's writing. And it became clear to me that Bill Wilson had read William James's great book that you just held up, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And that was a book that he was given during his final sobering up in the Charles B. Towns Hospital in 1934. But I also knew about William James that he was what we would call a pluralist, that he was someone who didn't believe in well, when it came to spiritual matters, he had no interest in religions or dogma. He was a pluralist in the sense of saying there may be many divinities or there may be very many deities and that our spiritual impulses are part of our human nature. But those spiritual impulses can be snuffed out by how we live or they can be ignited by how we live, particularly if we make changes. 
So I wanted to go into James's varieties to find out what he has to offer people suffering with addiction or other forms of suffering and to understand the possibilities of transformation. So the term higher power comes from William James. And it's important, I thought, to return that term higher power to its much more broader, expansive, pluralistic, more inclusive sense beyond God as we understood him, which is how it gets reduced in the 12 steps. So I just wanted to introduce people to William James. That sounds like that's what this book does. Yeah. And it sounds like it ties in a lot with what we hear more and more now with like many paths of recovery, like many different ways. And some of us have been thinking of that for (laughs) quite a while. Not everyone was on that same page, but you also just like tied into a lot of his own family history was, yes, was in, in this as well. So that the, the James family was the foremost intellectual family in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And they're also one of the wealthiest families in America. And William James's younger brother is Henry James, the great American novelist. The James family was all deeply troubled um, in various kinds of ways. So psychology as a discipline doesn't exist at this time. William James founded the psychology department at Harvard. So there's an argument to me that he's the father of American psychology. The entire James family seemed to have what we might call a nervous disposition, or they all suffered from the words of the time, angst or acute melancholia. We didn't have things like major depressive disorder and anxiety wasn't a medicalized condition yet. It was actually a spiritual condition is what philosophers would have said. And James's connection to people struggling with alcohol was very real and very close. His beloved younger brother, Bob, was a raging alcoholic. He spent years in and out of the term was asylum for the inebriate. And William James, the foremost intellectual of the United States, a psychologist and physician, could never crack the riddle of alcoholism. And what he ended up concluding was, we don't understand it. And maybe at the end of the day, we have to say that maybe alcoholics are people who are somewhat mystical and that they're always trying to reach out to something more, to something more expansive. And he said, turns out that alcohol excites the yes function in people. It makes them say yes. And what we know is alcohol is a disinhibitor. So it's going to make us say yes to really great things or to really, really stupid things, but we're not in any position to to judge it. So William James knew acute suffering from the inside as well, that he is a very young man, seriously contemplated suicide. He came very close to it and that he understood himself to have made the choice to believe in free will, that his actions matter, that his actions could contribute to the value of his life in the world around him. And that's an important way to understand what we as suffering alcoholics or other addicts can do when we become willing to make chances or changes in our lives. So William James, in many ways, is a model for people who suffer greatly, suffer deeply and transform themselves but also never entirely get away from it, that he had these recurring bouts over the course of his lifetime. But it makes him such 
a sympathetic observer of human nature. And this book, Varieties, is in many ways a lovingly detailed, what's the way to put it, kind of almost like a cartography of different kinds of suffering. And more importantly, how life can look when someone does have this remarkable spiritual transformation where they're reborn, regenerated, rejuvenated, they they become new people, we become new people. And I like how you talked about in the book um, where there's these stories of these this enlightenment that happens like an incident or an event happens and all of a sudden like someone seems to change very quickly. And that's sometimes how I think it gets talked about a lot or hoped for a lot is people are looking for that that event or thing to happen where all of a sudden like a light the light switch has flipped and now the person you know makes that change which i think with you know family members loved ones i think they're they're hopeful that that's what can do yes. it but yes. you also really make sure to discuss that that's not the only change that happens that that oftentimes too there is gradual change there this is not something that's just going to happen like a flip of the a switch yes i and i think that's right so Bill Wilson's experience becomes the foundational experience for AA. So there he was in this hospital and he is defiant, but he's totally down on his luck. He and his wife are are living with his in-laws. He's failed at business. And he says, you know, if there is a God, show yourself, I'm willing to do anything. And he says, at that point, I felt this experience, this gust of spirit and my desire to drink was lifted. And a few minutes later, he's like, am I losing it? Am, am I going crazy here? Which is a legitimate worry with um, the effects of alcohol withdrawal right. <laughs> and the effects of belladonna. I mean, both of which can make you hallucinate in a kind of way. And it's Bill's story that we first read about in Alcoholics Anonymous. It isn't until a subsequent printing in the, I think it's the second appendix, where Bill Wilson makes reference to William James and what he calls, he calls it an educational conversion. And I would say it's a a gradual or a willful volitional one where people change dramatically, but the change has unfolded slowly. And so whether it's that big sudden burst tsunami or it's the slow gradual one, William James says the process is the same. It's a psychological process. It might feel like God causes the sudden one because it it seems so almost violent or something so big. Where did that come from? It had to come from outside of me. But James says, it's just a psychological process. And James says, it doesn't matter the speed of the process. What matters is what a person does as a consequence of the process. And so that's that kind of spiritual awakening or um, another phrase he says, a person's habitual center of personal energy changes. So you move from orienting your self-identity, most of your life's activities from your drinking or using or other kinds of behaviors where with the conversion, that spiritual impulses now burn at your center. And what he means by that is nothing more than a kind of reaching out to something bigger than just your own little embattled or puny self. It could be just a better version of yourself. It might be believing in moral principles. It might be enthusiasm for others. He said, whatever is big enough to help you become willing to change, that can function as a higher 
and friendly power. He says, we, we stand in kind of a friendly continuity with those things. So there's nothing magical that happens and changing doesn't re require belief in any kind of deity. The change can come from within you. You can offer your own conversion. And that's very empowering. Yeah, I and I, that I, I already, I, I, I can do this if I become willing. Yeah, I think it kind of puts a little bit of, in a good way, just some ownership back to the person to like not wait for something to come around to mm -hmm. to make that change. Like when's that going to happen? Or it just hasn't happened yet. Like that it's it's there, you know, it, it's, it's, it's possible it's in there now to happen, you know, or to start happening, but not waiting for things outside external to then all of a sudden create change mm -hmm. or anything like that. Cause I, you know, you see that happen a lot. I see that happen with, with people I see in, in, in counseling who are kind of waiting for something that they think is going to create this, you know, I kind of look at it as more of like a theatrical or, you know, movie television media hyped version of change that, that that's what we see a lot portrayed when it's, it's not always like that. Oh, I, and I think it's, probably most often not like that. And so if people are waiting for that magical moment to happen, if they're wishing, wishing, wishing for it and just building an expectation that it will happen, it's not going to just happen. So part of what, what I'm trying to argue is that a higher power doesn't do anything to you. Having a sense of a higher power, a continuity to something bigger than you is what enables you to do something. So when you're wishing translates into willingness, the gap between wishing that I were sober and willing to be sober is immense. And that's, I think, the, the, the gap that people don't always see. And so they get stuck too much on the wishing side, which is, you know, clearly what you're saying. Yeah. There's a, there's a part I wanted to ask you about, because I, I love what you wrote in this part of the individual being, being the expert. And I, I think we often get away from that. Sometimes I see other clinicians and, you know, treatment teams of people, the professionals who they, they look at as the person doesn't know, like they're in denial, they're lacking awareness, like, they're, they're not seeing it. And, you know, we have to bring attention to that. And some of the, you know, true modalities like really speak to that as well. In here, you wrote, each of us is an expert on his or own experience. We do not need to have specialists or professionals interpreting our stories and their meetings. I, I really like that because I think we get caught into thinking we're experts on the use disorder and we think that means we're an expert on the person. Oh, that's a wonderful way to put it. Yes, exactly that. Yep. Yeah. And Stand, I remember standing ovation on that. And yep. I and I remember I was um I I do a book club with some of the clinicians I work with, and we were reading A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And one of the the things that he says in there is like the the person who knows himself the most is that person. Like no one knows that person better than them. But Sometimes as professionals, we sometimes think we know someone 
more than they do. And and I think that's that's dangerous when talking about this type of transformation and change. Oh, I wow, that you said that just blows me away because I think that's part of it. It's this delicate balance though, because I think I'll only speak for myself. So when I was using, when I was drinking, I was a raging alcoholic um, in high school through college. I thought that I knew everything about me because I knew everything that was wrong with me. I knew every single transgression. I knew every single failure, moral defect. And I thought I knew everything about myself. And I thought I have privileged access to that. Only I have access to my state of mind, to to my history, to, to my memories. And what anyone else had to say to me well, they just don't know me because, you know, I, I put on a good face or I've, I've got a nice shiny facade or something like that. And that's not right either, because I think many of us, when we do that work of introspection, we're looking at funhouse mirrors. It's mm. fundamentally distorted in a kind of way. And it actually took me reading Aristotle. So here's where the philosophy comes in. Aristotle, who says the right kinds of friends are moral mirrors from you. And you learn about yourself from having the right sorts of friends. And it made me pay attention to the fact that it has to count as information when someone else tells me something about myself, not just because I'm in you know, the easy, oh, let's just say it's all denial or something like that, but because I had these sort of deep-seated views of myself, it had to count as information. So it is that delicate balance. And I think any clinician who can sort of point out the fact that there is this balance and help the person to begin to look at those two scales and figure out this is all falsely weighted with distortions versus, well, here's actually someone is telling me something where I've never considered about myself. Yeah, that counts as a piece of information about me. Self-knowledge is fundamentally social. It's relational. It's, it's not just a product of a solitary individual. Yeah, I remember this is one of the things that... Uh past supervisor of mine always said there there'd be when I used to do a lot of work with like groups we would do like two groups a day for you know like five days a week in residential treatment and once in a while like the group uh cohesion wasn't the greatest where there was just you know some problems going on maybe one or two people didn't like each other and it kind of spilled into the entire group and when it got to this point, my supervisor loved to come down and sort of have a talk with everyone. And it, would, it wouldn't happen that often. It'd be like, maybe this would happen like once or twice a year. But whenever it mm-hmm. did, she always said something that stood out to me is she goes, I want you to look around this room. And I want you to, to identify who you admire the most. Who do you look up to the most? Mm-hmm. And then she would say, I want you to also look around the room and who do you struggle with the most? Who do you maybe not see eye to eye most? And she would always leave the group with, these are the two people who you'll learn most about yourself from. Yep. That's a great insight. And it it reminds me of that. Yeah. Like just the, the funhouse mirrors of people around you and like reflecting that back and it, and we're, we're social beings, you know, and we talk a lot about how, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. I think that's mm-hmm. connection with people, but I also think that's connection to ourselves. 
Oh, absolutely. I always describe addiction as a losing of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, the philosopher Kierkegaard said, I have this quotation from him that, that I absolutely love. He wrote, the greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, is sure to be noticed. But we never notice that we've lost ourselves. And I think that's one way to understand addiction, that we start giving ourselves over to drugs or alcohol. We start giving ourselves over to the opinions of others or the you know, being well-regarded by others. And all along the way, we just chip away parts of ourselves or we don't fully create and construct ourselves because we decide that, oh, well, these parts or pieces of me are ones that people won't approve of then I'm just going to ignore them or I'm going to disavow them in a certain kind of way. And so then, you know, as time goes on, a person becomes unrecognizable to him, her, themselves, or perhaps they never really were ever recognizable to themselves. I think the younger you start drinking or using, the more that's the case. And I think when, that- when someone gets to like those points, I think one thing that, the profession sometimes doesn't do a good job of, and I'll say society in general too, is sometimes it comes off as the person is defiant or they're in denial, they're non-compliant when, you know, someone's trying to address it or help them or maybe point something out. And I think they often forget that the the person themselves probably doesn't feel the greatest about themselves, a ton of shame, you know, um, I think as people have treated people with substance use disorders, pretty bad, we can't forget too, that they've already beat themselves up pretty poorly and they don't need any more mistreatment. They don't need any more, you know, um, guilt, you know, shame thrown at them. They're, they're already wrestling with that enough and to get them to a place where they can go there and sit with that and have a willingness to explore the connection with themselves. We can't pull them away and expect them to be able to do that because that's really tough work. It's incredibly tough work. And one, people probably lack the skills to do it. And two, they're probably terrified by the unknown because three, their ability to hope has probably been squashed and their imaginations are probably set full throttle to always go to worst case scenario. So I can fully understand why sobering up and trying to figure out how to be a different person, live in the world in very different kinds of ways is utterly terrifying because you simply don't have the skills. You don't have much to drop from on your own. So you don't have the kind of capital within yourself to draw from. That's why mutual help groups, good clinicians, various other kinds of approaches are all vital. I feel sometimes 
saying about recovery, by any means necessary. And trying to figure out ways to make what's available work for people. And that's a real challenge. Yeah, but I, I it it definitely is. The reason why I'm such a fan of it is because I think it it helps that person to get to a spot where they can start to have like empowerment. Like I am transforming that like this is their life. This isn't our recovery. This isn't, you know, we we have no ownership of of that. Like this is mm-hmm belonging to them. And I like, you brought this up and I'm actually, um, uh, I was looking at one of the things that I, that I underlined was about having faith and taking like faith and, and taking action when there is uncertainties. And I thought that was a really great, uh, yeah, right here. Um, for James, faith is a willingness to live on possibilities, to have faith, is to act when the results are uncertain. That's all faith is. And the fact that faith flows through all dimensions of our living, that sure, there's religious faith, but I have faith in my plumber when he comes to fix the leak under my sink. It's not guaranteed, but I I still have faith. And that makes me act to call the plumber and then pay the plumber. And one of the examples that James uses about having faith, he said, it's a really common, ordinary question. I wonder, do you like me or not? And I have to continue to act as if you do. And my mm. act as if you do like me will help to bring about the fact you do like me. In the same way, if I think you don't like me and I start treating you as if you don't like me, guess what will come to pass? So that really shows the way in which faith is just that willingness. It's kind of a working hypothesis. It's a what if. What if I act? What if I try not to drink for the next hour? What if? And I know I won't do it if I'm not willing to try. So that faith is just a willingness to live on possibilities and maybes. Yeah, I remember and- I was I was hiking a mountain with uh, my my brother-in-law and we were we were seeing where like the top was and of course i was like thinking if we just go up this way we'll we'll get there it looks pretty close because i can see it (laughs) but the but the 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 trail led us into a way different direction and as we started going that way for a while, we couldn't see the top anymore. We were we weren't any view anymore. And I kind of looked at it as like having the belief that if we if we keep following this path that has you know been set before us, like believing that we will get there, you know, like without even being able to see it and being uncertain as to when we would get there and whatnot. Um, and I, I just think that there's there's a lot of reasons why people in general struggle with taking steps with uncertainty and in the unknowns, right? Like that's like a, a driver of anxiety is uncertainty and unknowns. Like if you want to, you want to make someone, you know, certainty is safety. Certainty is, is comfort. And part of it is how do we get more comfortable being 
uncertain about things and not knowing. And sometimes I look at that. I have to rephrase it sometimes even myself with like, well, not knowing gives me a chance to know. Like now I'm on a, a journey of understanding, which is kind of cool because I wasn't there before. But I know that's not easy when we're talking about some of these these transformations like, you know, substance use. I think that's I think that's right. And one of the things that James is so clear about is that people have a right to believe in things where the evidence stops. And I might have all the evidence in the world that I can't quit drinking. This was me as a, as a college student. I had all the evidence in the world that I couldn't quit because I had tried numerous times and I had all the evidence in the world that I couldn't quit, but I still have a right. It was still good for me to believe that I could quit because if I didn't have that belief, I never even would have tried. So in some ways I had a good sense what the answer to my trying to quit drinking would be one last time was, well, I'm going to screw this up again. The question is how long? So there was no guarantee. The only guarantee there was, was a negative. I knew what would happen if I didn't even try. So sometimes it is a matter. You do know something. You do know what will happen if you don't try. You don't know what will happen when you do try. And it could be wonderful or it could be horrific. You don't know, but you still have to keep acting. So faith is always based in action. It isn't just a belief. It's belief coupled with action. And I think that gets ignored too with people who, when we talk about like things like relapse and, you know, someone may have had a, a return to use where there's sometimes, you know, a, a addiction can be crippling. It can be tragic. It can you know, it can be fatal. Right. And yes. we look at that as like how much it has like damaged the person, hurt the person, like look at what it's, it's brought to them. But I also think we ignore that there are some people who have been dealing with this, working their recovery. They've had times with success and times where it, it didn't go the way they wanted but I know so many people that like have never stopped trying. Like they, yes. they have continued, even if they come back to treatment the third or fourth time, like coming back four times is, that's pretty resilient. You know, I remember a guy who like, I remember this story a lot. He told me about how drinking led him to like lost his job. He lost his, his home, his family. He, got sober. He was working again. He bought a home again, lost it all again, did it another time. And I was like, that's crazy to think that he was able to like, still keep doing that, still like work towards that stuff and achieve that when most of the time the view of him is, well, how look at like how weak he is or look at how many times he hasn't gotten it versus like that's a that's a lot to be able to still accomplish and keep trying like not throw in the towel oh i i think that's right and i i understand why people in aa count their their days of sobriety i i understand on the one hand on the other hand i always worry about that particularly with a slip or a relapse because it does lend itself to all or nothing thinking it's like oh well you had 26 years and now it's gone 
No, it's not. Because you may have learned so much about yourself. You may have set the high watermark for what you're capable of doing, where it can serve as an aspiration for the next time. And that's pretty, pretty gutsy. And not that I'm encouraging people to, to relapse, but there are, there are opportunities because sometimes when things are repaired, they're stronger than they were originally. And certainly I have seen people who have been sober for a while, they go back out, have a full-blown relapse, and they come back and they redouble their commitment to their sobriety, where they understood that that was one hell of an unwanted opportunity that I presented myself with, but I took advantage of it. And so when I hear you know, the story you just told about the, the person who went to treatment three or four times, I like to think every time they learned something, every time they were able to hold on to something so that maybe, so there's that maybe, maybe it's possible that this time it would be longer lasting. Yeah. Now the, the days part, what I've started talking with some people about is, as far as counting days to, you know, like to each their own is, you know, to do that or not. But one of the things that I have started talking to people about was, it's kind of like a the um step tracker right so some people <laughs> some people some people do things where their steps are tracked you know like their fitbit or their apple watch and and blah 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 and some people are like they get frustrated when it's like they're it, it died or they didn't have it on and they're like oh mine aren't going to count today and it's like in my mind like your your body still counts that like you're you're still doing that. So I've used that comparison to people where like, if you've been sober for this long and there was, you know, a return to use, like your, your body, your life didn't forget all that. Like it's still mm -hmm. experienced that it still went through that just because that happened. Doesn't mean it just now all of a sudden, like erases that back to zero. It, the body, right. like the big, the big reset button has yeah. been hit. And you're back to zero. And, and I fully, I fully agree with you on that. And for me, it does come down to that all or nothing though, because then if you do believe it's all gone now, well, why the hell not? You know, you might become a resigned to it. You become a fatalist. It's like, well, I've thrown it all away anyway. And that kind of fatalistic thinking, I think is one of the most dangerous forms of thinking. And it's a particular form of suffering because in effect, you're saying nothing matters. So why should I give a rip about anything? Because nothing matters anymore. And that to me is tragic. And I want to go back a little bit to, to, to James and part of this, the whole story with, with his family and everything it touched on other issues as well. So like, it seemed like it kind of touched on like mental health issues, family issues. I know this book you know, really focuses on the addiction and suffering, but I, I can imagine you've seen this work apply to several other areas in life for a person, not just addiction. Would that be correct? I think that that's fair to say. I mean, James had this wonderful expression, world sickness. What happens when a person starts to, his term was devolve into a pathological melancholy what happens when a person doesn't experience joy in the same kind of way maybe they have less of it 
or they stop to have, they stop having any joy. They have absolutely no pleasure. What happens when a person begins to think that everything about me is wrong or horrible? And then the worst form, and this is the form that James identified himself as suffering from. What happens when I start to think there's just no value in the world at all? The world is just an awful place and it's just pure torture. That's the point where William James considered suicide. And so that kind of, I know now we put everything on a spectrum, but it was a spectrum for James. And he he in his lifetime pulled himself out of that pathological melancholy and was happy for great periods of time in his life, but he could sort of fall back to it. And so for him, it, there was an important kind of self-knowledge to know when was it, what was happening when he started back down that track to that melancholia or that deep angst and despair about himself and his place in the world. That is a question that's far broader than just addiction. Yeah. As I'm, as I'm hearing that addiction isn't even the thing that always comes to mind with that now. Like I think there's probably a lot of people listening, a lot of people in this world that can relate to that that question you know that that concept of it and i just think that there's sometimes an attempt to kind of do like a quick fix with you know mental health you know addiction other things where it's like let's get let's get this person in and give them some skills and whatnot and then they'll be they'll be better or they'll be okay Mm-hmm. And not necessarily enough of like some of those deeper philosophical questions that a lot of people, anyone coming into the door or seeking help can actually relate to. Oh, I think so. And I think the ways in which people stop caring about things, I hate the expression, I don't care. I don't care. Some things I genuinely don't care about. I don't. I don't care if the Minnesota Vikings go to the playoffs. Okay, there, Andrews in Wisconsin, so I can say that. He's probably gleeful. Um, I genuinely don't have a care about that. But people start not caring about how they treat other people. They start not caring about how they treat themselves. They stop caring about what happens to them in a kind of way. That one of the most extreme forms of suffering is when you become indifferent to yourself and to other things. Nothing matters. So why bother? That kind of indifference fundamentally saps motivation. Um, and so, you know, you had mentioned Viktor Frankl thinking about um, Eli Wiesel talking about indifference is the worst thing that we can have towards one another. But when we have indifference towards ourselves, I mean, it's absolutely gutting. It's absolutely tragic. I've heard, yeah, there's, you know, sometimes people say, well, what's the opposite of love? And people it's think indifference. it's, yeah, people think it's hate. Like they, they think hate mm-hmm. is the opposite. But oftentimes, time and time again, yeah, I hear it's indifference is the opposite of love. Uh, but people don't seem to think of it that way. Cause I think indifference is kind of like, eh, like I don't hate it, but, but that, that indifference is, is toxic. You know, it's, it's damaging it's, it's, for 
Yes, it's corrosive. It mm-hmm. fundamentally corrodes a person's self. It corrodes relationships. Because indifference is about severing connection and not caring, not having a stake or investment in the outcome. And that is a very, I would argue, inhumane way to be in the world. And James certainly would say that indifference probably is an opposite of spirituality. Spirituality is something that reaches outward to others or deep within ourselves, trying to connect to something bigger than ourselves. And indifference is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, so important. You're the, when I first started reading your book, right from the get-go, I was, I was like, okay, here we go. We're, we're digging a little deeper here than normal. We're going to get, you know, philosophical and we're going to explore some, some questions that don't always have like simple, easy answers. Mm-hmm. Have you ever found that someone might struggle with with that where they might be in their life like some people might not be ready for that or that might um that uncertainty that unknown that i'm not sure what i'm going to find down there or i'm pretty sure i don't like what's down there where that that can be really hard for them to do and then if so how do we how do we help with that how do we get more of those questions that that you pose and talk about in your book how do we bring that more into things you know like treatment and therapy and and conversations with others well i i think one easy so i used to do a lot of work at my college with students who had gotten caught with the most serious alcohol infractions they were my people i understood them because i i was them and a colleague and i developed an educational program to get students to try to think about relationship to self and relationship to others. So many students, for example, were deeply worried about what getting in trouble would do to their family. So we would talk a lot about, well, now why are these family relationships important? How do you see yourself in there? We would talk about friends because many of the kids who did get caught were with friends, but they also had friends who were worried about their own use. How to get people to recognize and accept that they are connected to other people because oftentimes I think people with addiction think that they are, well, they are the plague, they have the plague, or that they're not worthwhile to be connected to. They can't imagine that people would care about them. And so to go back to their self-image is so distorted that how do we try to help them to see things more with a plain mirror, not a concave or a convex one? So how to engage them in thinking about who they are. And so as a moral philosopher, I talk a lot about your character. Who are you? What are your principles and your commitments? What are your goals and aspirations? And how do you think you should, should meet those goals? And what things would be okay to do? What things aren't okay to do? And what I have found is that if I can tack into these conversations well, people love talking about this. I think they actually do. Once they get over the initial fear of, well, wait a minute, these waters are too deep or too choppy for me, that it's a, it's both giving permission 
and giving concepts and frameworks for people to come to begin to understand themselves in all of their wonderful complexity. I think we ask a lot. And I think as you were explaining that, I'm thinking of like, when we do like assessments on people, we do, you know, intakes, diagnostic interviews. We ask so much about like the, the what, you know, the how, mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't spend a ton of time asking like the who, you know, like, who are you? You know, like, you know, you know, what about your identity? You know, what are those things? You know, we, we kind of check off some boxes by like asking maybe about some like strengths, um, which is a whole nother thing that I think is misused often when we just like write down strengths and kind of move on. But we don't really, we focus on that once again, like the, the use disorder, we focus on the that the the problem where we don't necessarily yeah we don't necessarily dive into a lot of that that who that identity work piece that i think when it comes to transformation not just stopping something you know not just giving something up anymore but with change and transformation we are talking about someone's identity who they are So William James had this great insight. He said, in order for someone to become willing to transform themselves, they need to be aware of two things. One is the incompleteness of the wrongness, the insufficiency of how they are presently living. And I think a lot of us get very good at enumerating all the things that are wrong with us, what's wrong with our life. So it's the kind of, that's the negative. But you need to be able to see what is wrong so that when you have, here's the second thing, and this is the much harder part. He says, in order for a person to be willing to change, to have the potential for transformation, that person has to have a positive ideal that they long to compass. They have got to have some positive vision or some positive ideal to be able to move to. It's not just enough to move from something, but you need to be able to move to something. And I think that that's one of the wonderful strengths of various groups like AA, Life Ring, She Recovers, Smart Recovery, is that people supply that for people who are newly sober. They may not even know that they're providing something of a a better picture of life, how life could be. And it's going to take people who have been struggling with addiction, particularly for a long time, a while to be able to come up with their own their own ideals or their own visions and to be able to trust that it isn't just all wishful thinking but it's something actually that they might be able to realize i mean those muscles of imagining good things for ourselves they atrophy if we ever even had them when we're most active in our in our use and it takes a lot to fire them back up so I have described describe people in recovery, particularly the early ones, that we're hitchhikers. Mm. We hitchhike off other people's sobriety. We hitchhike off their notions if we're an AA of higher power. We hitchhike on their visions of what a good life could be or sort of their own lives we idealize in a kind of way. We do that until we can begin to do it for ourselves. But that's a skill that we have to learn. All these things are skills. That we don't just come to possess magically, we possess by coming to 
we come to possess them by beginning to work them and to hone them. And that's hard work. I would love for that question to be asked on when it comes to treatment planning. Like yes. I would, I would really love to see that as more of like, when we talk about like the problems and, you know, like goals and, you know, methods, interventions, all that stuff of like how we're going to, but that all of that is to really work towards what, and I feel like answering that question could be like, really what this is all ideally working towards. And that's, that's a, that's a greater ideal concept than just like, well, they're here and it's to stop using or like, like that's, but that one of would, course, that one would right? encompass so much of like that, you know, who they are, who they want to be, what, what they're trying to do. Like if that could be, I think a question posted like on the, on a treatment plan followed by all the other stuff we put in there. I think that has some potential for some, some real empowerment and, and oh, vision. I, I and vision. wholeheartedly, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'd say to you, Andrew, and that's what might be a higher power for someone. Yeah. Yeah. That's and so incredible. To, to, to get someone to tack into it that way, to begin to see that they already have some of these pieces within them would be incredibly empowering. Yeah, I'm really, I'm going to, I like toying with new ideas and oh, I like and, this. And, no, I and really stuff like, like that. that. But I, I think, because I think there's like that disconnection sometimes between like when we talk about, you know, the treatment plan, you know, this is their, their roadmap. This is how they're going to get to where they want to be. How we think of it as clinicians does not always match up with the person who is getting help. And this being a, a really great question to pose in there that does create this ideal of who they want to be and where they really want to go. And if they don't know yet, at least a starting point that that can be like crafted and changed as they make progress where they were when they first came in is not where they are now months later working with them. And that's, that's great. Like there's been changes, like, let's not forget that. <laughs> and, and I think it's so fantastic because I think people in the worst throes of addiction lose their humanity in a kind of way because they have been outside the regular traffic of social interactions, engagements, moral interactions and engagements. And, and I think it's a way you might say, what, someone needs to be reminded that they're a person? Yes, I think people do need to be reminded that they are people. I mean, particularly when a person gets reduced to a diagnosis or a person gets reduced to an insurance code and then gets described in an assessment and then given a roadmap. I mean, roadmaps oftentimes show multiple ways to get to the destination, <laughs> but we assume that there's only one way. You, you take the most direct way no, I, I want to go this way, or I want to explore over here. So how to empower people to say, you know, this is a rough map. There are different kinds of maps. It could be a topo map. It could be an aerial map. But to give people some sense of agency and authority in their own treatment plan, I think that's what gets lost sometimes. 
we are experts on our own experience. We have a lot to bring to the treatment table and the right clinicians, the good clinicians understand that and they partner with us. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a partnership where the, you know, dynamics can be difficult at times, but they can also be incredibly effective at times. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed this, this conversation and talk and the oh, I have to diving, Thank you. Thank diving you. back into I've, I've already, since I started reading your book, I was like, okay, I know I've got to go back and read the varieties of religious experience by William James. Cause it just opened up wanting to, to revisit some of that, go back to that. But I think there's, there's so many great things in here that, that ties into so much of what we talked about and can really do a lot to not just help people who are dealing with addiction and suffering, but also helping the helpers and clinicians who are also doing that work, I think can, can greatly benefit from this as well. So where, where can, well, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Where can listeners uh, find your book? Where can they, you know, find, find stuff with, with the work that you do? What's the, what's the best way for them to direct you to the stuff that they're doing? So the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and can be open, can be um, ordered at your local independent bookstore if you happen to have one of those. I have a website, pegoconnorauthor.com. That's a landing page. So there's links to books there. And I also write a blog for Psychology Today called Philosophy Stirred, Not Shaken. And I've got some op-eds and other interviews and podcasts on there. It's just meant to be a place where people can swim around and hopefully find something interesting or useful. That's my hope is that this is useful to people. And I think it will. So, I mean, listeners who, who read it, I think the philosophy and the the history of William James that you dive into, it's, you're going to get a history lesson. You're going to get some things that are really going to be helpful. So it, it's been a, a great enjoyment having this conversation with you and talking about the work that you're doing. So thank you for, for joining and coming in and talking on the show. Well, thank you right back at you to hear about your work as a clinician. It, it, it does my heart good to know that people like you are in the field. Really appreciate it. So thank you for doing that important work and for doing this podcast. Yeah. So listeners uh, check out her book, go to her website and learn more about everything she's doing. The book is higher and friendly powers, transforming addiction and suffering. And Peg, it was, it was really great to interview you and, and thanks for joining. And I hope our listeners can take away some things to, to learn from. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to Talking Addiction and Recovery with Andrew J. Schreier. We're so glad you've joined us and invite you to connect further with the show and these topics at www.andrewjschreier.com. That's Andrew J. S. C. H. R. E. I. E. R.com. You can also email us directly at talkingaddictionandrecovery at gmail.com and connect on social media Instagram at Talking Addiction and Recovery, Facebook, Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast, and Twitter at TalkAR underscore podcast podcast. To stay connected and never miss an episode, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. Until next time, friends, let's keep talking addiction and recovery.